names, uh, my name is Aileen and I'm a senior lecturer in pharmacology in the uh, Department of Pharmacology and Therapeutics. And my area of research is in diabetes. So my uh, research department is the Department of Diabetes in the School of Life Course Sciences. Okay, um, so me and Ayman have done uh, a bunch of research on uh, what you are doing and what your background expertise is. And so first question that I have is what made you do research in this particular area? Because for us, for the, from the research that we have seen, it's a relatively new area, especially um, with what you are working with. So you could, how about you fill people in on what motivated you to go there? I mean, I guess it depends how far we go back because I've been doing diabetes research actually since I was 19. And this was because I spent a year um, a placement year as an undergraduate student. Mm -hmm. um, so in particular, I, I actually wanted to go abroad. And when I was at university in the programme I was, there was only the choice of France, Sweden or America. And I thought Sweden sounded the most exotic because obviously I'm a little bit strange in that way. Uh, so I decided I wanted to go to Sweden. And this was actually before I knew what the research was about. So I'm not saying that I grew up wanting to do diabetes research, but I was pretty pleased when I found out it was diabetes research because I'd heard of that, which was always a good start. So I actually started working in diabetes research as a third year undergraduate student in Sweden. And um, I enjoyed it so much, I went back to do my PhD. So I've been in the actual diabetes field for a very long time. Um, I'm not, I've got several interests just now and I'm not particularly, I'm not sure exactly which ones you're referring to, but um, again, a lot of it has sort of, you don't, you, you kind of fall into by accident. And, and that actually happened with the King's Mouse, which is one of my uh, interests at the moment. And that came about by a colleague, uh, Dr. David Anderson in Wilson Card. He just emailed me one day and said, we've got some diabetic mice and we don't know why they're diabetic. Uh, mm -hmm. Are you interested? And I wrote back that I was indeed interested. Um, and it kind of, that whole project just started from that one email of, uh, and it was just curiosity initially, why were these mice diabetic? And that just uh, led on to a whole um, a whole project, uh, which I'm now really interested in. So yeah, um, so more about the mouse. Obviously, uh, the king's mouse is a, a certain type of mouse which has a certain mutation in the insulin molecule, and that prevents it from uh, from its metabolic pathway to fa function properly. So, how about you fill people in on how different this mouse is exactly? from other mice that are being used in research and what's so special about it? Okay, so as you said, this mouse has um, a mutation in its insulin molecule. And this actually um, leads to something called endoplasmic stress, uh, endoplasmic reticulum stress or ER stress. And this means that the mouse can't produce insulin as, as efficiently as it should. And the males become diabetic uh, by the age of five weeks, like really diabetic, um, blood glucose levels over 25 millimolar. And the, the female mice don't 
get diabetes, they get impaired glucose tolerance, but they don't actually become fully diabetic. Now, this is really interesting because we, if we, we're trying to understand if, if we could work out why the females are protected. Now, there are lots of different animal models of diabetes. Um, some of the reasons that this one's particularly interesting, one of the biggest reasons is this mutation is also found in humans. So that's obviously mm, makes really? it relevant, but it's very, very rare. One of the most common ways that scientists induce diabetes is by a drug called streptocytosin. Mm -hmm. And this increases blood glucose very rapidly, but it is a toxic chemical that can also affect uh, the liver, the, the kidneys. Um, so, and we've also had previous studies showing it affects the nerves. So it's not ideal, but in our mouse model, um, we, can, we have this very high level of diabetes without using any chemicals. Um, there are a couple of other mouse models that are similar with a similar mutation, mm -hmm. but we think ours is special because we don't think the beta cells die and in okay. other module, mouse models they do. Okay, so um, if the beta cells don't die, would this model of mouse point to any particular treatments or novel agents that might be used in therapy against diabetes? So they're obviously incretin hormones, So, uh, but maybe what if this strain of mice would point us towards another treatment that we're not yet aware of? Not yet aware of? Yeah, I mean, that would be really exciting. It's actually quite <laughs> cool that you mentioned incretin hormones because that's exactly what's on my PhD students' list of what to do next. Yeah. So one of the things she is going to try is, is initially using drugs that we do know about and see if these can improve the uh, diabetes in this mouse model. So the next experiment that we're going to be starting in the next few weeks is to inject this mouse with uh, probably Exendin 4, which is a GLP-1 receptor agonist. I think at the moment, um, if we can find any way to reduce the ER stress, then maybe that could be helpful. And we, knew, we know the ER stress, which is the endoplasmic reticulum stress I talked about before. It's also important in type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Um, mm -hmm. So if we could figure out a way to reduce it, then it could help maybe in all types of diabetes. Okay, that's really interesting. Can you tell us something about uh, the social implications uh, of your research, like in healthcare or perhaps some drug discovery or development? Um, I mean, at the moment, it's still very early days. So it's, um, I mean, we have made this uh, mouse uh, available. So it's on the sort of Jackson Laboratory Mouse Genome Information website. And if any other researcher in the world would want access to this mouse. We are sharing it. I'm not um, because we think it's important to to share information and data among scientists. Um, it's quite it's a bit too early to to say if it'll have any major impact on on healthcare. Um, although, as I said, this uh, mutation is found in humans, but it's very very rare, so it's unlikely to have a massive impact directly, but indirectly, we hope it can be used uh, to understand ER stress and diabetes a lot more. And also possibly, and this is an area that I really find is, is sort of understudied, is differences between males and females. Um, why, why do you think there are differences? 
between males and females because th that's a very interesting point to make uh, because normally most scientists do not account for this when they do animal studies right yeah we're yeah we're actually doing another study just now as well which is looking at blood glucose in male and female mice uh, using telemetry and you know we're not surprised male and females are different it's just about understanding a little bit more about it female mice when i when i was doing my phd i remember asking my supervisor why don't we use female mice and he actually just said uh, makes me laugh a little bit now but he says oh they're too hormonal and the idea was that because of the estrus cycle they would give you unreliable results because they would change with what uh, the menstrual cycle in, in mice is called the estrus cycle. However, our, our recent data actually shows that female mice are less variable than male mice. So there's no reason to um, to not include them on that basis. I mean, it's most likely the obvious answer that estrogen is doing something protective. And we know in humans that after the menopause, women are more likely to develop diabetes. But understanding all this in a bit more detail would uh, would be really helpful, I think, in, in human diabetes. Um, speaking of uh, speaking of beta cells, um, I've, we, we've also noticed you've done a lot of work on uh, actual eyelid transplantation rather than finding novel pharmacological treatments for type 2 diabetes. Um, how is this in, what is the state of this area of research? With regards to transplantation, is are there any prospects there? Because it's been around for a while, but yeah, yeah, you've done your homework. It has been around for a while, and I started doing eyelid transplantation again uh, when I was nineteen, and I won't tell you how many years ago that was, but it has been around for a while. There was um, in the year two thousand, the, the, there was this really important paper. Um, where they really got human eyelid transplantation working for the first time. So prior to 2000, it just really didn't work. In 2000, they can get it to work. So eyelid transplantation in humans does work, but the problem is uh, there's such a lack of donors that um, you can't, it's not a widespread uh, treatment. The other problem is that most uh, people would need immunosuppression and the risks of immunosuppression are actually higher than the risks of insulin. So if you can um, treat, if you can live well with diabetes and you're well treated with insulin, you're expected to have a long and healthy life. Whereas immunosuppression, it's okay if you're, you know, got a heart transplant because the other choice is that you're not going to survive. But you've got to remember these uh, patients uh, normally would survive. So giving them a drug that can increase your chance of cancer or infections is not great. So at the moment, it's sort of it's sort of just two groups of uh, patients that get eyelid transplants. One are patients that are already on immune suppression because of kidney transplant and thereby it's not an added risk. And then there's a set of diabetes patients that um, have hypoglycemia unawareness. And this basically means that they don't feel 
that their blood glucose is dropping. Now, a normal diabetic patient feels when their blood glucose is dropping and they go and get some orange juice or they have some sweets and, and, and they eat them. And that prevents them uh, you know, falling into a coma. For some diabetic patients, they don't actually realize that's happening. So basically, they just keel over and, and become unconscious. And that might happen several times a month. And in these patients, it is seen to be worth the risks because their quality of life is, is actually much lower than the average uh, diabetes patient. So in general, technically, islet transplantation works. Uh, the, the hurdle that remains is can we, and that's part of what I research, can we make the islets more efficient so that we could maybe transplant several diabetes patients from one human pancreas? So uh, you're basically trying to circumvent the problem by making the transplanted islets more effective rather than suppress the immune system of the recipients, right? Yeah, I've actually, I've always been interested in another way of doing this. Um, and this was my PhD project was to try and transplant without immune suppression. And mm -hmm. to do that, I encapsulated the islets. So basically I put the islets in a little cage and it means the immune system can't um, attack them. So that's um, that's another way of kind of facing the idea from a different angle. The problem with that is that the islets aren't as happy in these little cages. Um, so then you need even more islets uh, to transplant. So it, it sort of helps solve one problem, but it, it gives you another problem, which is often the case in science. Yeah, that, that, that's that's definitely an interesting approach because when when I think of islet, uh, any organ transplantation for that matter, I think of immunosuppression because it's a huge risk to the recipient. So yeah, that, that that I still find this fascinating. The fact that there there are other ideas out there that may prove functional later. So yeah. which which I hope that will because diabetes is 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 a burden for our society now. So the quicker we find the cure, the better. But yeah, that that actually sounded really interesting to me. Um, everyone, so, yeah. So can you can you talk a little bit more about the cage and how like um like what it is made of or something like that? Yeah, it's made of seaweed. Um, so um, basically, the whole this wouldn't work for whole organs because the whole point is you don't have blood flow because if you have blood flow, if the blood was actually getting and making contact with the cells then you would actually get rejection because obviously that's how rejection happens. Uh, uh, sort of T lymphocytes actually physically attack the graft. But islets are very small clusters of cells that they're only about, you know, two or 300 microns. So what we use is this um, uh, substance called alginate. Now you may have come across alginate if you ever watch MasterChef and they make these beautiful spheres you know, like when they drop the spheres and they make these little balls of flavor, that's actually alginate. And how it works is when it comes into contact with uh, calcium ions, it cross links. So it starts as a sort of viscous liquid. And then when you drop it into calcium or barium ions, it kind of cross links alginate and it becomes like a kind of harder jelly. So you have, I have this special machine in my lab where you can spit out the islets into the, the barium and calcium solution. And, um, and then you have these little see-through 
balls for want of a better one. Yeah, they're completely spherical. And um, yeah, and they're made from seaweed. This is uh, this uh, substance is a polysaccharide made from seaweed. So it's completely inert. It's uh, very safe. And if you're a mouse, it can cure diabetes. In humans, they've actually done clinical trials, but humans still mount quite a severe fibrotic response to it. So it forms fibrosis around it, uh, which means that the oxygen can get through. The whole, the whole point of these is they've got very, very tiny holes. Now, insulin is a very small molecule, as is glucose and obviously oxygen. But immune cells are obviously much, much bigger than an insulin molecule. So the idea is just basically, it's, it's, it's like I said, it's nearly like a cage. If you went to the zoo, you could pass, you know, an apple through to the animal, but the animal can't attack you. Um, so it's the same idea. Um, but we've still got a way to go for that as well. But it, it is, uh, I, I, I do think it is quite a nice idea that you basically hide them from the immune system. I'm, I was also wondering, uh, what do you mean by endoplasmic reticulum stress? Like how it is, um, re um, like fitting into the uh, diabetic model of the mouse. Um, so it's all about how efficiently the beta cell can make insulin. Now, what the endoplasmic reticulum uh, does in the Golgi is it makes sure that insulin has to be packaged in a very particular way. Now, with the, um, with the mutation that the insulin has in our mouse, it, it doesn't fold in the correct manner. And the cell senses that this insulin is misfolded. Um, so it tries to take care of these misfolded proteins by something called the misfolded protein response. Um, now, this happens even in normal cells, uh, but the trouble is it becomes overwhelmed uh, by this, and then it ends up that uh, the endoplasmic uh, reticulum swells, the mitochondria swells, and the whole cell uh, has one of two options. It can either adapt or it will go into apoptosis. And many times it's believed that this endoplasmic reticulum stress forces a cell into apoptosis because it can't cope with uh, these misfolded proteins. Um, the misfolded insulin molecule, what it essentially does, does it just kill the beta cells because it's not made properly? Is that what is happening? Yeah, I mean, it, it gets retained in the endoplasmic reticulum, which mm -hmm. starts just sort of stressing the cell overall. Um, and then it might also interfere with, it's, this is a heterozygous animal, so one allele of insulin is, is okay. And it might start interfering with the ability to secrete mm -hmm. um, the the proper insulin, and it's probably a little bit of a sort of vicious circle to a certain extent because then when the insulin isn't working so well, that the blood glucose increases, and then because the blood glucose is increased, the cell needs to make more insulin, and that puts it over um, into even more stress. So it, it just becomes worse and worse to the extent that it's trying to make insulin very fast. It's not folding properly and it just can't keep up with the demand. So basically it's, it's a positive feedback loop, essentially. So the more the more the more glucose is ingested, the more insulin is produced, but it's not folded correctly. So it's actually like worse for the animal. Yeah. 
And so how, how would you deal, what are the methods that you deal with that in your lab? So you, you see that this is a problem? Well, we're kind of trying to do the opposite because really? we think this sort of happens in type 2 diabetes to a certain extent, mm. that once, once the demand for insulin increases, the chances, even without mutation, the chances of insulin misfolding increase the more insulin you make. So you might just sort of push it in um, to towards this ER stress phenotype. Um, we we're actually we don't understand why the males become very diabetic and the, and the females don't become diabetic. So the most recent experiment my PhD student Lydia did was she put um, the females on a high fat diet and the idea was to increase the insulin demand in these animals and basically they became a little bit more diabetic, but they still didn't become as diabetic as the males do. So that's probably the main area of concern that in the diabetic field, is it? Makes sense. So, <laughs> so I wanted to ask, um, like you mainly deal with mice, so um, like how do you, uh, what are your uh, expert methods of reducing stress in mice and like how do you handle them uh, within the um, regulatory means and stuff like that? Um, yeah, so I mean, when you're doing animal work, you have to be really organized uh, because it takes, you know, about three to six months to get all the licenses through. Um, so you can't just decide that you're going to do an experiment tomorrow. It has to be in the paperwork. Um, but I mean, there, there are there is a bit of flexibility within what project uh, you've written you can do. Um, Sorry, I've forgotten the, the first part of the question was, it, oh, yeah, how do we work within the regulations? And um, uh, like reduce the stress and like maintain the animals. OK, um, so actually that's another area of research. If it's like you guys are the, the best uh, researchers ever. You keep asking <laughs> questions about my research. Um, so there's another area of research that I'm doing that I find really interesting. This is what I was talking about. Um, it's called telemetry and in telemetry you basically can implant a little device into the mice it is surgery so um, you do have to do surgery into the mice but then you can measure blood glucose without touching them so um, usually when you measure blood glucose you you put a tiny uh, needle in the end of the tail and you use a blood glucose meter like uh, humans do in this situation you can actually measure the blood glucose uh, because it sends a signal to the computer, basically. Now, this is really interesting because we can see what the mice are doing when you don't touch them. But at the same time, we, we can also see exactly how stressed the animals get when you pick them up, when you change their cage, uh, what happens when you fast them. So that is actually teaching us a lot about how we can improve our methods and make the mice happier. And one of the things that really surprised me is you would expect when you pick a mouse up and inject it, uh, which I believe Peter has done, it's, it's quite a stressful thing for the animal. But actually, it's not as stressful for the animal as changing the animal's cage. So they like their own home. They like their surroundings. 
So we've discovered if we change the cage and uh, but keep the bedding from the original cage so it still has its own bedding smell, there, the blood glucose uh, doesn't rise as much after changing the cage. But if you just change the cage and put the mouse into a new cage, its blood, its blood glucose is increased for about two hours afterwards. And blood glucose can increase when you're stressed. So we believe that all this is teaching us more about what keeps the animals happier. And we're using that to improve our research going forward. And hopefully we'll write a paper telling other scientists to do the same. Um, speaking of animal research, just to uh, clarify something, because the people watching us might have heard of some misconceptions that there are out there about animal work and how animals are treated. Because obviously there, ha there has been a lot of criticism coming from people who believe that animals are not being treated uh, respe respectfully by people who do research on them and they think it's not a good idea to do that. So uh, how about you clear some of those up? For our, viewer, for our viewers? Um, yeah, I think the most important thing is that, that scientists keep open. And actually, King's College has an agreement that we should be as open as we can be about doing animal research. Um, because I think if you're not completely open, then people use their imagination. Um, so to that end, um, I think you know we try and, and, and be as open as we can about animals. I think some people don't realize how regulated it is. So there needs mm -hmm. to be three licenses in place, one for the scientists doing the work, one for the project to see what experiments you're allowed to do, and even one for the room. So you can only do experiments in specified rooms at King's College. Um, also, a governmental inspector can turn up any time, and quite often he does. Um, and he can just walk in and see what you're doing and ask what you're doing. Then he can check the paperwork and check that you're not, uh, that you've got permission to do those experiments. Um, but the most important thing is also, and we're, this is what I was alluding to with the telemetry, is you're, if you don't take good care of the animals and respect them, it will affect your results. And as a scientist, you don't want that. So if the animal is in a lot of pain or distress, their blood glucose will increase because you've got the effects of adrenaline and cortisol. So it's in your best interest to keep the mice as calm and happy as you can. And obviously, it's in the, uh, the best interest of the mouse. And I think it's important when you work with animals that you actually like animals because then you automatically treat them uh, with respect. It's hugely important. So would those mutations then also be present in humans and how much danger they would have? Or are those explicitly mice genes? No, they, they happen in humans too. So the King's mutation, it's mm -hmm. probably not called a King's mutation in, in humans because I, I didn't discover it. Um, but uh, yeah, the King's mutation, as I said, it's only been described in about eight patients. So obviously mm -hmm. that's tiny. Uh, the OBOB mutation, the mutation in leptin, that is also uh, being described in humans, uh, where you get uh, young children um, massively overeating and becoming really obese. But if they inject uh, leptin back into them, then they lose weight again. Again, it's a very rare cause. So in both those examples, even though the mutation is rare, it gives us a phenotype in the mice that we're actually interested in.
Um, so sometimes how rare the mutation is, is not really what we're studying, if you understand what I mean. Um, so basically what you want to do is to have a disease that is caused mainly by the genetic factors, so you could investigate them more and see whether you can anthropomorphize it and see if humans have the same thing, right? So... Um, In mice? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's easiest when yeah, it's of course. to deal with if it's a single mutation and you know the mechanism and then you can try and understand how that can relate to humans and how you can stop it. Um, but having animal models where it's not just one mutation can be hugely useful as well. And another example is the Nod mouse. And it's a, it's a model of type 1 diabetes where mice just spontaneously develop type 1 diabetes. And this is involving lots of uh, different factors, a bit like humans. But through this, we've learned a lot about the immune component of type 1 diabetes. And there is a slight genetic component in diabetes, and we learned a lot about that through the Nod mouse as well. But when you look at things like the Nod mouse, it depends on your experimental question, but it gets a lot more complicated if there's a lot more genes involved. So speaking speaking of priorities, what would your priorities be for the next uh, research project that you may do? Where do where where do you see yourself? Let's say in five years, if hey. I may ask. So. <laughs> um, feels like I'm getting. Oh, I suppose I am getting interviewed. Um, I'm really I'm really interested in this uh, male female uh, part of of the yeah. studies because even in the normal mice, I can see there's differences. Um, I am pretty sure it's relevant to humans because after the menopause, women are more likely to get diabetes. And I think it's um, an area that's sort of neglected um, in all areas of research that, um, especially, you know, in, in the first studies, understandably, uh, young men tend to be used. And there's reasons for this, obviously, because uh, there's no risk to the gametes in a young man compared to a young woman. Um, so, but I'm really intrigued how you can have the exact same mutation and, I, I'm, you know, the male mice get really diabetic and the female don't. Now, I don't know how relevant it is to humans, but there is definitely um, some kind of protection in women before the menopause as well. So estrogen must be doing something good. So. And if we could understand exactly what's happening and why the the females are less likely, perhaps, that their beta cells fail compared to males, maybe it could help both males and females after menopause. So that's what I'd like to be doing in five years. We'll see if it happens. And I was also wondering um, if at all you had a setback, what was it like in your research career? Oh, I've had many setbacks. Um, I think um, actually one of the hardest things was actually just before I started a PhD. I went to um, I wanted to do a PhD in Sweden, and to get onto that PhD program, I had to study the second and third uh, semester of medicine, but that was in Swedish, and I kind of knew a bit of Swedish, but I didn't really know a lot of uh, words that I would need. Um, and it was before the days of PowerPoint, um, so the lecture would just be writing on, on the blackboard with chalk, basically, I'm that old. 
And I didn't recognize some of the words. And then I was writing down words that didn't exist. Anyway, I totally <laughs> failed that first exam. And then I just studied really hard and, and I got, uh, I passed the, the next time. So I think that was actually, it's not like a major part of my career, but it was actually a really important part because if I didn't carry on at that point, I wouldn't have, have uh, become a scientist. So I always think that, yeah, that was, that felt like a real setback, but I managed managed to get around it. I, I There was a lecture where they were talking about mother cake and I couldn't understand why they were talking about baking. And they kept on going on and on about mother cake. And it turned out it was the literal translation for placenta. So they were actually talking about the placenta, <laughs> but I was, I thought they were talking about cooking. So I was, you know, I had no idea what was happening in that lecture, but I really, I'm not sure if I always um, make it, but I really try to remember that when I'm lecturing, that if the students don't understand some of the basic words, then you can lose them for the entire lecture. So I think it's really important sometimes to go through things like that, yeah. that make you think, actually, if you don't define the words and you're just assuming they know the words then then you're lost for the entire lecture so yeah and i was also wondering how has covid 19 impacted your research um so it so i've got two phd students at the moment and actually one of them it impacted a lot and the other one it hardly impacted at all the one that impacted a lot was the one studying the king's mice because we weren't allowed to get into college. Um, so basically, um, you know, she couldn't, you can't study, <laughs> study mice at home. Uh, so that really, she had to stop doing her research. The other one actually um, was the one doing the telemetry. Now, when the first lockdown happened, she was just coming to the end of a telemetry study and it actually just meant that we left the mice alone for a while, which gave us really good data because we could really see what was happening when researchers weren't going in at all. So that was nearly a benefit. Now that project, I think each mouse generates something like 8,000 data points a day. And she had, you know, a four or eight mice to analyze. The good news for the other student was um, there's always a silver lining, I think, and she was just coming up to her upgrade. And usually when students start a PhD, all they do is think about the experiments and do the experiments and they never kind of stop and think because they never have time to stop and think. What the pandemic did was it forced them to stop and think. And I think that was really beneficial, actually, for the students at that time point, even though it was frustrating. Okay. Um, yeah, I, 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 th I think I don't have any more questions. Do, do you have something else you want to ask, Ayman? No, I have questions I think you guys have done pretty well on the questioning. So, yeah. yeah, that was really, I mean, really good, really informed. Yeah, you've also done a very great job on responding to those questions. Probably a better job than us. Um, actually, uh, I don't know about that. No, I'm really impressed, really impressed. Yeah, and you've likewise. obviously done your homework and it was really fun just to talk to you too. Can't think of a better way to end the week. 
Yeah. Oh, okay. Thank you. Okay, that that is really nice. Thank you so much, Aileen.